0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU, and your host. January 19th marks ACLU's 100th birthday. To commemorate the centennial, some of today's most significant writers contributed to a new anthology of essays on landmark ACLU cases. The roster of writers includes Jessmine Ward, Salman Rushdie, and Dave Edgers, discussing cases like Brown v. Board of Education, Miranda v. Arizona, and Roe v. Wade, just to name a few. The book is called Fight of the Century, and it was the brainchild of today's guest, Ayelet Waldman, an accomplished writer and former public defender who co-edited the book along with her husband and fellow writer, Michael Shabon. We'll discuss what inspired this effort and how storytelling, in the courtroom and in literature, can shape our nation and our lives. let, as I understand it, the idea for this book came about after the last presidential election. Can you take us back to 2016? What were you feeling and what spurred you to action? Do I have to go back to 2016? (laughs) Do I have to revisit the trauma, the ongoing horror?
1: (laughs) Well, basically, I, like everyone else in sane America, was horrified and devastated. Although I was not surprised because I had been saying all along that Trump was going to win, partly because I'm a pessimist and partly because my father is an immigrant with a deep suspicion of the American psyche. So as soon as... It became clear that this was happening, I thought of the various organizations that I have supported over the years, and I immediately decided that the ACLU was going to do the most exciting work. And even at that point, I didn't even know the true extent of the horror and the true extent of the ACLU's commitment to this. But um, I called up a friend, James Essex, who is the head of the Gay and Lesbian Rights Project. And I said, okay, James, Anything you need a couple of literary novelists for, Michael and I are here to do. And we had done a book that was a collection of essays from different writers about the situation in Israel-Palestine. We brought them over to the West Bank and Gaza. And he said, well, what about a book like that about the ACLU? And that immediately struck a chord for me because I knew there were other novelists and other writers who were also similarly desperate to do something and didn't know how they could bring their skills to bear. And so we decided that we would do this book. We would take all of these seminal ACLU cases and we would just give them to the writer and just say, do anything. Here's your case, Brown versus Board of Education. Write whatever you want. Write an essay, write a story, write a describe the facts of the case or don't describe the facts of the case. We really gave people all the freedom in the world. And we put the book together and it's been, it was an incredible ride.
0: I was especially interested in what you said about your father, having this deep suspicion of the American psyche. And I think at least the deep suspicion with American government runs to the heart of a lot of the work that the ACLU does. The book is called Fight of the Century, right? So there's a fist on the cover. It's about Resistance. So what did you think was so compelling about bringing fiction writers into this fight?
1: Well, you know, I've always believed in the power of fiction to both illuminate and change contemporary society and history. So I think the greatest feat of fiction is empathy. It's really the only medium in which you can actually live in the point of view of someone completely different from yourself, someone else, and understand their thoughts and see their thoughts. I mean, think of the visual mediums, film and TV. You don't, you're don't, you not inside their heads, but with fiction, you really are inside their heads. You can see through their eyes. And I think fiction writers are really adept at both, not just empathizing, but kind of digging in and limiting empathy for meaning. And maybe that's sort of self-aggrandizing because I'm a fiction writer, but that's what I've always used fiction for in my life. And it just seemed to me that we could show people this long history of a commitment to civil rights and really make them understand how these cases, most of which seemed Really fringe or difficult to understand or revolutionary at the time, how those cases shaped American history and brought about the kind of America that people know and love. Fiction is a great way to. Help the medicine go down in a sense. And I didn't, you had no idea what we were going to get, right? I mean, and especially when you ask like the most important American writers, you know, carte blanche, do whatever you want. We had no idea what we we're going to get. But we just hoped and imagined that the essays that we received would shine a light and allow the layperson, not lawyers, to really understand why what the ACLU is doing is so necessary and how. This fight for civil and human rights is the most patriotic thing that an American can do and that any American has ever done.
0: It's a really powerful story. Of course, you're a uh, fiction writer. You were the co-editor of this book and other books, but you're also an attorney and a former public defender. Yes. In some ways, this was the perfect project for you, bringing all right. those different skills to bear. And you not only edited the piece, but also contributed a piece.
1: Right. I wrote an essay, edited them all, helped to solicit the writer. It, you know, it's like one of these books is a huge project. It's like you know it's almost tried to say it's like herding cats but it really it's like herding weasels forget the cats you know
0: <laughs> and it must have been particularly difficult to herd these cats given that they weren't being paid for this particular project yes
1: exactly although you know what nobody ever wanted nobody said anything about that nobody ever wanted to be paid everybody the thing is i mean we are all looking for a way to help, right? We are all looking for something to do in this time of crisis where we can bring our own individual skills to bear. And, you know, not everybody's a lawyer. Not everybody can go to court. Not everybody is able to go, you know, witness at the border the incarceration and torture of small children. But everybody wants to do something. So I felt like, you know. This was a way to allow lots of different people with a specific skill set to participate in the work of resistance, which is what we all have to be doing all the time now.
0: You talked about the range of writers that you have. They're all imminent in their own way, uh, but they take slightly different approaches to the work as you gave them carte blanche. But many of the writers really made it a very personal story. They connected the cases in some way to their own personal experience. And this was very much the case for your essay, Mm -hmm. which addressed O'Connor v. Donaldson, which was a case that granted due process to people with mental health disabilities. And of course, you've discussed your own bipolar disorder a great deal. So I was wondering if you might be willing to read an excerpt of your piece at the end of your essay where you reflect on the case's relevance to your life?
1: I absolutely would be. As a high-functioning person with a mood disorder who has written openly about her mental illness, I found myself reading Kenneth Donaldson's case and personal account with an eye toward drawing a distinction between him and me, as if to reassure myself that I wouldn't ever have fallen into such a circumstance. I latched on to his various expressions of seemingly paranoid delusions with a sigh of relief. I'm not crazy like that, I thought. Am I? It's true that I've never been hospitalized, but I came of age in a post-O'Connor versus Donaldson world. Where I have my grandparents' generation, it's entirely possible that my occasional bouts of suicidal ideation would have resulted in commitment. And once committed... I, like Donaldson, might have found it all but impossible to convince the arbiters of my incarceration that I should be freed.
0: Thank you very much. And I think the connection that you draw there between the client or the person who actually brought the case and the broader impact, I think, really speaks to the sort of heart of impact litigation, which is what the ACLU does on a daily basis. We try to pick cases that have a broader impact to try to make a point for the society. I wonder how you navigated the sort of tension between the the individual story of the case while also making the broader impact. It's almost analogous to the way fiction can be both on the micro level investigating a particular character while also trying to have some resonance with the reader.
1: That's a really interesting question. You know, I think for the older cases it's often easier because they're already sort of part of the historical firmament. So the, um, the ramifications of them are more important in the contemporary imagination than the individual cases. Although that's one of the exciting things about some of these essays, which actually kind of dig into those original cases and, and shed light on not just the law that resulted, but what actually happened in those individual cases. But I think the balance is, what's most interesting because it is those personal stories that give the reader something to latch onto. You give them a way to understand. I mean, analogy makes things comprehensible in a way that simple description does not. And, you know, I think law students learn that, you know, when you're in law school and you're presenting a case, when you're called on by your professor, the first thing you do is you give the facts of the case it's a really useful tool for a student because it's memorable and it allows you to really kind of understand through analogy. And I think that's kind of what this book does too. It uses analogy and personal story, both of the writers and then also back towards the facts of the original cases to make them comprehensible and to allow you that kind of moment of empathy that can make you realize that Brown versus Board of Education isn't just about segregation in a macro level, it's about what happens to a specific child or a specific group of children when they're not given the opportunities that the people around them are.
0: In the foreword, our legal director, David Cole, writes, a lawyer's job is to weave a compelling narrative in the hope of persuading a court that injustice has been done and that the court has the power to right the wrong. You're in a unique position where you've been both a legal writer and a legal storyteller, but also a fiction writer. I mean, the law often plays heavily into your stories.
1: I always tell people that, though, My murder mysteries were the first books that I ever published. They weren't the first fiction that I ever wrote because one of my jobs was to write sentencing memoranda. And in those, you have to convince the judge that your client is the most lovely person on earth and does not deserve the terrible sentence that the mandatory minimums impose on him or her.
0: Well, you know, creativity is certainly a part of legal practice. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Although one is not permitted to lie.
0: No, no, so, of course not.
1: You know, if one really wants to do fiction writing, you gotta like write a book. But License and embroidery, that's the name
0: of the game. (laughs) Well, many a person with a law degree has eventually ended up writing novels. But I'm curious, you talked about it's everyone's responsibility to join the resistance at this point. And clearly there's a role for ACLU lawyers, there's a role uh, for fiction writers. And I wonder if you can sort of compare those different roles that you've done. Is there a place where the law ends and this kind of uh, need for empathy and storytelling begins on a broader level?
1: Look, I think in terms of where one can have the most impact on society, I wouldn't presume to say that fiction has the same impact as the kind of impact litigation that the ACLU does. That changes the culture and the legal system and the lives of people in a very specific and, you know, in a massive way. If you have access to education and you have privilege, then you need to use that access and that privilege to help bring people up behind you. So, you know, in terms of who's doing more good for the world, the ACLU has it hands down. But I do think there's a role for fiction. And, you know, part of that is just pure entertainment. It's just giving joy. But part of it is, like I talked about, engendering empathy. I mean, I feel like a person who reads the work of Jessmine Ward, for example, mm. has a harder time being a miserable piece of poop <laughs> racist than a person who doesn't read the work of Jessamyn Ward. I mean, I think the capacity to see the other as human just like you is something that can really be done through fiction. So it's like a twofer. It's beautiful and entertaining and then also um, has serves this larger purpose. But, you know, there, there are many writers who kind of reject that premise and say, you know, my job is not to work towards social justice. My job is just to write the best words that I can.
0: And do you ascribe to that in your other non-editorial, overtly political work? Do you feel that you have a message and an obligation to say something particularly relevant?
1: Oh, you know, I think because I came to fiction after being a public defender, fiction was always a tool for me. I mean, I love—I I write because I like telling stories. I love write because I love to read. But all my work has a larger message. So the TV series that I just had out on Netflix called Unbelievable, is a story of what happens when we don't believe women who are victims of rape. And my novels have been about things as disparate as homophobia in the Orthodox Jewish community in a lighthearted mystery, I would like to point out, (laughs) to...
0: Not um, easy to pull off.
1: No, it was quite something. And who knows if I pulled it off. And to, you know, the... Right to choose and the you know price of uh, ignoring a woman's right to choose. I mean, I wrote a novel about mandatory minimum sentences. So my fiction is if not overtly political, then purposely political. And I try, you know the as I get better at it, I hope I become less didactic. That's the goal to kind of trick people into at least enjoying the book even while you try to get this larger message across.
0: Well, I think it comes through, especially one of the themes of the book, we talked about it being resistance, and in some ways the ACLU has had uh, a long history of taking controversial cases, defending folks that we don't agree with, really trying to broaden the political dialogue as wide as we can. And I know that this also resonates a lot with a lot of writers because censorship banned books and those sorts of issues have always been front of mind for creative folks. And your husband, Michael Chabon, who co-edited the volume with you, actually wrote about the banning of Ulysses and the brilliant lawyer at the ACLU who argued the case and got the ban overturned. So I wonder if you can just talk about, is there a special place? I'm a, I'm biased. I'm a First Amendment lawyer at the ACLU, but I wonder <laughs> if as a writer, um, the First Amendment cases and particularly the banned books hold a special resonance.
1: Absolutely. Every writer that I talk to And every writer I know is now very, on some level, really worried about the First Amendment perils of what we all do. And that's one of the reasons that we included journalists like Timothy Egan, Bill Finnegan, nonfiction writers in the collection is because of that, because they are particularly at risk right now. But I don't think there's a writer in the country who isn't thinking about the banned books movement, the... Vilification of the press, the vilification of intellectuals, writers, people who think and write for a living. I mean, it's hard for people to believe that we are at a dangerous time in terms of the First Amendment because we take so for granted our right to say whatever we want in America. I mean, that's the rhetoric of the right, too, you know, like how, you know, this is my First Amendment rights. I get to say, you know, kill all black people because I have a right to say kill all black people. But we take that for granted, all of us. And we, on some level don't really believe that we could lose our right to free expression but I actually and tell me if you agree with me I mean you're on the front lines of this I actually believe that we are facing a constitutional crisis that we are facing the potential of losing that right to all but unfettered free speech you know within reason.
0: Well, you raise an interesting point. I mean, from my perspective, I come at the First Amendment and free speech from an international human rights perspective. And I actually agree with you. And I am not much of an American exceptionalist. And I've seen what happens when you have restrictions on speech and when dissent is allowed to be trampled by the government. And it's not pretty. I've had friends and colleagues go to jail more than once for criticizing the government, for standing up for different unpopular groups, whether they be LGBT, indigenous groups, activists, environmentalists, whoever it is. So I agree with you. I think, you know, we're only our rights are only as strong as we're willing to protect them. And if we change the rules, our society changes, and there's nothing that says that that can't happen or it won't happen. So I totally agree that vigilance is necessary and that there's nothing that's preordained about freedom in the United States. And I think the other sort of thread of it is this sort of inherent distrust of government's ability to fairly regulate, especially speech. And I know that sort of contrarianism is one of your hallmarks as well. And I wonder if that was also sort of a resonance with the ACLU. And, you know, we do have this sort of fundamental skepticism and belief in people as opposed to the rulers.
1: You know, absolutely. Look, I was raised by, I can say this now, he's 95, they're probably not going to deport him. But I was raised by a Trotskyite, right? So skepticism of the capitalist structure and a capitalist government is deep and fundamental to my core. And incidentally, skepticism about a Stalinist government also, because like I said, Trotskyite not just a plain old communist. So (laughs) I got that with my breast milk. And one of the things that does appeal to me about the ACLU and has always appealed to me is the purity of the commitment to that. So the freedom is freedom of expression. It's not freedom of expression for people who, for example, believe in equality. So the Skokie cases, the cases about white supremacists and Nazis, I felt like when I learned about those cases as a kid and when I read more about them in law school, that seemed to me to be the finest expression of what the ACLU is doing. And what's interesting to me right now in terms of the moment that we find ourselves in is that organizations like the ACLU who are devoted to those freedoms can find themselves under attack both from the right and the left. You know, and in some ways, I worry that there is less of an understanding of the importance of doing that. Now, we have to understand where that suspicion comes from, right? I mean, if your life, family, security is under attack by the contemporary white supremacists in the White House and their various millions of fellow travelers in contemporary American society, it can be agonizing and traumatizing to see an organization that's devoted to your civil rights also speak on behalf of theirs. But I think that that commitment is really important to maintain. And, and um, it, it's something that I admire most about the ICLU because it's hard to do, man. It's hard to do in a time where you feel like there is a fundamental threat to say, you know, it's not just we who get to speak, it's all of us. It's not just we who are protected from incarceration. It's, for, you know, false and problematic reasons. It's all of us.
0: Well, as an African-American working on free speech for the ACLU, I can tell you I heartily understand how, <laughs> how hard these issues can be. And I do want to highlight that the book is obviously a celebration of the centennial of the ACLU and catalogs are most famous and some lesser known victories, but there are some notes of critique. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned the Skokie situation in the introduction to the book, but then there's also an essay by Scott Toro on Buckley v. Vallejo around campaign yeah. finance, an issue where large numbers of people who agree with the ACLU on most things internally and externally disagree with us on campaign finance. So I wonder how you handled those critical notes.
1: Personally, I was thrilled because I'm in the camp that thinks Buckley versus Vallejo is deeply problematic and i don't think that corporate speech is human speech and i think campaign finance isn't speech and but you know so i disagree with the aclu on this too which does not impact my deep commitment to the organization and i think the same thing is true of scott's rose so when scott said i'm going to take that case i was thrilled and from the get-go he said and to be clear i'm critical of it and i was like go for it and then when the essay came in i thought oh wait This isn't Ayelit's book. This is or Michael's book. This we're doing this, you know, to celebrate the ACLU centennial. So maybe I should just put this, you know, blow this by Anthony and David. And immediately they said, What are you talking about? We're thrilled. This is great. In fact, this is our favorite thing. Of course, in a book celebrating the centennial of the ACLU, there should be essays critical of the ACLU. I love that. I love that the response was immediate and it didn't even warrant consideration. Of course, we support this. Of course, we want that in there.
0: The idea for the book was hatched in 2016. We've now just ticked over into 2020. It's still hard for me to say Happy New Year exactly at the moment. (laughs) But I'm wondering, uh, now that you've completed this project, as you mentioned and as I mentioned, you've got lots and lots of balls in the air, whether they be novels, TV, any other form I can think of. You're quite busy. But I wonder with relation to this particular project, What does the before and after look like? What have you learned? What what surprised you about the process?
1: Well, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it was just so heartwarming. You know, people like Geraldine Brooks, people like Marlon James, people like Ann Patchett, Salman Rushdie, George Saunders, Jasmine Ward— they are inundated with requests for their time. And when they speak, they make tens of thousands of dollars. And when they write, they make many dollars a word. And we were saying, do something for absolutely nothing. And it was so heartwarming how eager people were. I thought we would write a book with like 20 contributors. And we have over 40 people involved in this volume. So that was something that I found really encouraging. And it's particularly important. To me personally, when I drift through the world and sometimes feel like the entire country has revealed itself to be what my dad always said it was, which is a snake's nest of racists, homophobes and anti-immigrants. But it reminds me that the truth is that we are in the majority. Those of us who are committed to civil rights, those of us who are patriots, who believe in the Constitution, those of us who believe that this is a union that must be constantly in the process of perfecting itself, that it ha- it was founded on terribly racist principles in many ways, but that there was something pure about the Constitution, that it allowed room to grow and change, and that there was space to create, as the phrase is, a more perfect union, that we are actually in the majority. There are more people in this country like us than aren't. And because of our deeply problematic electoral system, because tiny states, rural states, whiter states have so much more power than larger, more diverse states because of the way the American political system is structured. We can feel like the minority. We can even look on a map like the minority, but we are the majority. And my husband is an optimist and he believes that the majority will prevail. And sometimes I just allow myself to believe that too. And the moment where I unpacked the box of books, and there were all these great looking books in hardcover, and there was all these amazing writers' names on them, and I thought, okay, well, this is a moment that I can believe in that potential, that we will get through this, and the America that is possible will... Prevail on the other end And then of course I woke up the next day And you know I was like well, It's all over soon and now <laughs> let's go Build a bunker in New-, New Zealand And how much money do you Have to have can someone else give
0: me A corner of their bunker <laughs> Well, that may be the closest to ending on a positive note that we're going to get today. So I will take this opportunity to thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your years, literally years of work on this volume. It's a beautiful book. It's a touching book. It's a powerful book. We really appreciate your time and thank you for all that you've done.
1: Thank you so much. You guys are the greatest.
0: Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.